Well, it is a little bit challenging historically to figure out exactly where Christmas bells come from and how the tradition started and how the association got put together. But I think um, even if we, we can tell some stories that, that kind of help us understand where that came from, there's also some biblical truth that connects to that that has made bells um, really special for me this year. And so I want to share that with you. In order to tell the story, we have to go back to, um, to Great Britain in the early 400s. Now, if you know your history, you'll know that at its height, the Roman Empire had reached all the way uh, north and west to the southern half of Great Britain. But by the year 400, with, uh, with other uh, powers and things invading uh, Italy and with civil war and things, the the empire was rapidly contracting. Uh, the, the imperial Roman troops had long since departed from England altogether and from most of France and most of Spain, and they were kind of concentrated around, around, uh, around Italy and a few places around there ha- trying to hang on for a while. But in Great Britain, in the south, where the Romans had been, you had a mixed culture at that time. You had villages and small cities that were continuing in the spirit of Rome. They had uh, houses with columns. They spoke Latin. Uh, they were mostly Christian. And, uh, and those persisted for, for quite a long time after the actual empire was gone. And then you had that mixed with more tribal, clannish villages that were uh, the traditional um, religions and, and superstitions of the, of the British tribes people. And that was kind of mixed together in southern south of Britain. And then the north was, had no influence from the, the Latin and the, and the Christianity. And in that situation, in a small town, one of the Roman, Roman-like towns, a young boy was born and, um, and he grew uh, up to be, and our story really begins when he's 16 years old. And uh, when, when this boy was 16 years old, some, some invaders uh, from Ireland swooped up the coast, swooped into their village, and pillaged and killed and plundered. And they took this young boy with them as part of their plunder. 16 years old, went across the sea to Ireland and was sold as a slave. And uh, he, he labored as a slave in a, in a rural setting for for um, for 15, 15, no, for how many years? I got here. Six years. Getting my numbers mixed up. For six years, he was a slave in Ireland. And so then, six years later, as a young man, he managed to make his escape. Uh, it took him two years to get across the ocean and then down from the north to the south of Britain to be reunited with his family. And then he continued to grow. He continued to uh, go on with his life. And he ended up uh, going into the monastery and becoming a priest. And all those years, as he studied, as he prepared for ministry, as he did all of that, he could not forget his Irish captors and the darkness and the fear under which they lived with their superstitions and their sacrifices and and, and all of those things. And so 15 years after escaping from Ireland, he got on a ship and returned. This time with a Bible under his arm, 
and a de determination to preach the gospel. Now, you probably know who I'm talking about by now. I'm talking about a man whose name was Patrick, and we refer to him as St. Patrick. And Patrick traveled through Ireland, and he was extraordinarily successful as a missionary. There's a number of reasons for that. One is he knew the Latin, he knew the Bible, he knew the, the education that he had, but he also knew the folklore and the legends and the stories of the Irish people and their languages and their clan system and how it all worked. And he was able to bring the gospel in a way that they understood. Now, we, we sometimes tell stories about the Great Reformation and the translating of Bibles into common languages uh, with Wycliffe and, the, and, uh, and, and Luther translating the first German Bible and stuff like that. But Patrick translated the Bible into the, into the languages of the Irish around 430. And he did a, a good job of it. And, and one of the things, one of the cool stories, like he, he was very good at telling the stories of the Bible in a way that connected with their culture. So in Irish culture at the time, doves were associated with evil spirits, not the Holy Spirit. So when he came to the dove descending on Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, he didn't translate it as a dove. He took a symbol that was culturally relevant to them that symbolized purity and holiness, which for the, for the Irish people was a gray goose. So to this day, if you go to the east coast of Canada and listen to some of the traditional Gaelic songs, you'll hear references to gray geese and wonder what they're about. They're about the Holy Spirit. And that still persists today in eastern Canada. And uh, so that's just one of the examples of how he, he was able to be culturally relevant and preach the gospel in a way that the people really heard it and understood. And, uh, and so he... he followed the example of the Apostle Paul. He traveled from village to village, from clan to clan, uh, with a small band of missionaries, and wherever they went, they would preach the gospel, they would gather a small group of believers, they'd disciple them for a while, uh, and, then, and then they would uh, appoint one of the disciples as the leader of the group, and then they'd move on to the next village and continue the mission. And uh, the way that... that Patrick is known to have done this is he would come into a village square and he would hold this bell. This is the actual bell of St. Patrick. Uh, it's a hand bell. It's about the size of a small bucket. You hold it by hand and you ring it like this and it makes quite a loud sound. And he would ring it in the square and these people had never heard a sound like that before and, and he would, you know, maybe something like that, only the bigger bell, so much louder. And, uh, and the people would gather to see, and then he would preach the gospel to them. And when he left the village and appointed someone to the, be the leader of that new, uh, new little church, he would give them a bell. And that would, be their, that would be their bell, and they would ring it on the tops of hills in the village square down along the sea. And when the people heard the bell ringing, they knew it was time to come and gather for worship and prayer. In fact... Patrick started so many churches that at one time, in his little band of missionaries, he employed three full-time metalsmiths to make bells. So he would, he would start a church, give the leader a bell, start a church, give the leader a bell, and uh, these, these blacksmiths were part of his missionary uh, endeavor. Well, the Roman Empire did fall apart, and... Uh, 
though the history is much more complicated than that, Ireland, now largely Christian, actually ended up being the place where the, the knowledge of the ancients, the philosophers and, and the ancient world were preserved in the monasteries as they copied and recopied the books that were burned and lost in the falling of the, of the Roman Empire. And uh, they, of course, started to build... I mean, Ireland's not a very good climate for meeting outside, so they started to build uh, first log shacks to meet in for worship. And, and then they'd take these bells that the leader had and they'd hang them on a post outside the church because he didn't have to carry it around to different places anymore. And then they, they, the congregation grew and they'd make a bigger bell and they'd make a bigger tower. And, you know, just gradually it, it shifted and changed until uh, they had uh, bells in large towers. But it was the Irish that started the second of the great missionary movements. The first great missionary movement was, at the, was started by the Apostle Paul and the other disciples as they moved out from Jerusalem and evangelized and brought Christianity to the entire Roman Empire by the second generation of, uh, out, out from the New Testament. When the Roman Empire was collapsing in on itself, that missionary movement kind of stopped along with the borders of the Roman Empire. But these Irish missionaries, uh, they soon were sending missionaries across first to Britain, and they evangelized Great Britain entirely, and then across the channel to, to northern uh, central uh, Europe, and, and many of them were martyred. You can still read their stories as they went into, into places where Druids had the power, and they were killed, and they continued to come out of Ireland until all of Europe had become Christian. And they came with their bells to call the people to worship God in the tradition of St. Patrick. Now, obviously, as, as, uh, as has always been the case, uh, many people come to church every time there's worship, but many more people come, particularly on Easter and Christmas, the the high holidays of the Christian calendar. And so I think that's why there's no, I don't have a point-to-point reference in history, but I think that's why bells have been associated with Christmas. Because on Christmas, when the bells rang across Europe, across Ireland, across England, the people, even who didn't go to church on most Sundays, would go to the church on that day. And so uh, bells have been associated with Christmas in our traditional heritage. But I had to ask the question, are there any bells in the Bible? Does anybody here know? We've read the whole Bible now. Is there any bells in the Bible? No one's willing to venture a guess. There is one reference to bells in the entire Bible. One reference. And I'm going to read it to you. It comes in the book of Exodus, chapter 28, and it is where Moses is describing the garments that the high priest will wear. And he describes it like this. You shall make the robe of the ephod out of blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it, with a woven binding around the opening, like the opening in a garment, so that it may not tear. On its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem, 
with bells of gold between them, a golden bell, and then a pomegranate, a golden bell, and then a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, so that he does not die. And I was thinking about that in relation to Christmas. You should all be somewhat familiar with this picture. We've gone through the Old Testament and the temple is, and the worship there and the Day of Atonement is central to all of that. You get the picture. The people are standing around outside. It's the Day of Atonement and the high priest is going to go into the holiest of places where even he only goes once a year with the atonement sacrifice. And the meaning of that is if the sacrifice is accepted and atonement is made, then the people have found favor with God through the high priest's ministry. And so they can't see because they're outside the temple. And the high priest alone goes in and makes atonement for the people's sins. And they must have been silent. The congregation of people all around but absolutely silent because they were listening for the bells. As long as the bells were ringing, the people knew that they had found favor with God. But if the bells stopped, the offering was rejected. And isn't that exactly the words that the angel said to Mary twice? You have found favor with God? You are a woman much favored by God? If the atonement is accepted, the bells continue to ring. But if they stop, the sins are not forgiven. And at Christmas, Jesus comes as a baby. Talk about that on Sunday morning, some of the significance of the fact that he came as a baby and not as an adult. But he came to become our great high priest. And even today, he stands in the holy place, not the symbolic temple that was on earth, but the actual throne of God, in the very real presence of God. And he makes atonement day in and day out. And I can assure you, the bells never stop ringing. And for those who put their trust in him and believe that he is who he says he was, the Lord and God come as a man to become our high priest. The atonement is made and the bells never stop. And so, as I was looking at this stuff leading up to Christmas, I heard uh, Brady and Jose Angel singing Jingle Bells. And it's not a Christian song, but for me this Christmas it was a Christmas song because it was about bells and I was thinking about the bells on the high priest who came as a baby and the bells are ringing. And for those who believe, we have the favor of God, our sins are forgiven. And when I ring these bells, which one? They're, they're all bells. They all, they all make the sound of the high priest walking into the Holy of Holies. And they can all remind us as a symbol of the great and amazing grace and truth of God that we are accepted, that we are favored because of his sacrifice. And so whether or not that is the actual Christmas connotation of bells, I'd like to add that meaning to the bells, whether they come on Santa Claus's slippers 
the harness of the sleigh or the bells in the churches across uh, Europe or the bells that ring electronically out of our bell tower downtown in Wainwright. When I hear the bells, I'm reminded of the only place in the Bible where bells are mentioned. In that context, they mean if the bells are ringing, the sins are forgiven, and those who believe have found favor. It's beautiful. It adds a new meaning, for me anyways. This same story had meaning for another man. I want to close with his story. Do any of you know the poem, The Midnight Ride of Paul Revere? Ever heard of that? Some of you have, some of you haven't. I think, I think you all have, actually, when I remind you of it. The last verse goes like this. Through all our history to the last, in the hour of darkness and peril and need, the people will waken and listen to hear the hurrying hoofbeats of that steed and the midnight message of Paul Revere. And it's a poem written by one man named Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, quite a mouthful. It was written about the uh, independence of America, and uh, Henry Longfellow was a young man when he wrote it, and extraordinary in that he became famous as a poet while he was alive. Most poets only become famous after they die, but Henry Woodsworth Longfellow became famous as a young man. He wrote this poem, The Midnight Ride of Paul Revere, and it was so liked by the people in America that it became mandatory in every school across the United States at the time that every boy and girl memorized the whole poem. What that means, when Henry was just a young man with a young wife and his first child, his name was already known by every single citizen of the United States. I mean, you talk about, about a, a top 20 mega hit, right? Well, this is off the charts. Every person in America knew the words of his poem. That's as famous as you can possibly get. That's right at the, at the top of celebrity at the time. Now, celebrity at, uh, happened differently in those days than in our days, but that's, the, that's as high as you can go if every person in the country has memorized your poem and knows your name. So he was at the top, and, and he was as famous as you could get. In fact, I mean, even today, maybe more so now than then, but not everyone can name their senator. Not everyone can even name the president or the prime minister. But when Henry Woodsworth was a long, a young man just starting his family, every person in America knew his name. So that's about as good as you can get in terms of fame in this world. And he rode that fame well until tragedy struck. There was a fire. Henry escaped. Charlie, his son, escaped. But his wife perished tragically in the fire. And from that day, he never wrote another line of verse. But our story comes in 1863, the Christmas of 1863. Henry Longfellow had not written a poem in 10 years. The most famous poet in America had not written a single poem in 10 years. He was depressed 
He, was, he couldn't work up the gumption to be creative. And then to make matters worse, you see, he had raised his children to stay home. He lost his wife. He wasn't going to lose his son, Charlie. But now a young man and civil war raging in, in the 1860s, uh, he woke up one morning and came downstairs, and there on the kitchen table was a note from his son, Charlie, saying, I'm sorry, Dad, I've gone to join the fighting. I can't stay home no matter what your wishes are. Not quite a year later, on December 1st, 1863, Henry got a telegram saying his son had been wounded in battle. Now in those days, even a small wound was almost certain death. The medical treatment was so bad that almost everyone got infected and almost everyone lost limbs and, and, and large numbers, even with small wounds, lost their life. He got the telegram they were going to put Charlie in a cot, in a boxcar, and ship him back to Boston. For three days and three nights, Henry Woodsworth Longfellow never slept. He went from train station to train station to train station. And as the cots came off the train, he looked at every face, one after another, going down the platform. And when he didn't find his son, he'd go to the next train station. And as they unloaded the Wounded soldiers, he'd look at every cot one after another for three days and three nights. Finally, he found his son, unconscious, high fever, on a cot, and he brought him home mid-December. On the night of December 1st, 1863, Longfellow was sitting in his parlor. His son Charlie was still unconscious, high fever, shivering before the, the fire in the hearth. It was dark. And he was more depressed than he ever had been. And then, on Christmas Day, he heard a sound. The first church bell calling people to Christmas worship. And he turned his head, he turned his ear, and then the next church. Before you knew it, the whole city of Boston was ringing with bells, calling people to Christmas worship. And Henry did something he hadn't done in 10 years. He lit a lamp on the desk. He took out a piece of paper and a quill and an ink blotter, and he began to write. And these are the words he wrote. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. And wild and sweet, the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. I thought of how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail with peace on earth, 
goodwill to man. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolves from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to man.